My assigned topic is the discipline of prayer. And I don't know about you, but years ago I heard a preacher who said, if you want to humble any Christian, just say, how's your prayer life? Uh, Today I don't want to add any layers of guilt or shame on you if you would blush at someone asking you uh, that question. I want to try to assist you. And maybe if you really struggle in that area, and I'm going to focus quite a bit of my discussion on a particular prayer that Jesus encouraged those he sent out to pray, first and foremost, And when we get to that prayer, you'll say, well, I don't pray that one. Okay, if it comes from Jesus, maybe we ought to add it to our prayer list. And if we struggle with that, I think looking at his heart will help us identify another request. So not trying to heap on you. Uh, Remembering from Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you look at your life, your spiritual walk, and you say, Rest? All I ever get from you preachers is just more stuff to do. Jesus is promising rest. When are you going to share some of that with us? He says, Take my yoke upon you. Wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. A yoke? We know what those are for. We haven't seen them in a long time unless we've been to a museum, Cannonsburg or somewhere like that. They're going to have a yoke. That's how you hook an ox up to a plow or a donkey or a, a mule or a horse. I'm not sure I want to get into plowing with you, Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus is calling us to a different lifestyle, not not just quantitatively, but qualitatively different approach to prayer life, I believe than many of us have recognized and practiced. But before I look at the passage that went out in the email, I want to look at a later passage. It's found in Philippians chapter 1. I was doing my daily Bible reading one day earlier this week and uh, was already preparing for today. And... I was struck by how similar the language is in Philippians 1 to that passage at the end of Matthew chapter 9. I'll just read the the first chapter of Philippians to give us a little broader context. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God 
What kind of friend would Paul be if every time he thought of you, he, he was thanking God? Whenever I make my, whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Imagine you, you meet a lost person, you begin to share with them the good news of Jesus, and they just can't keep it in. Every new insight they learn about Jesus, they've got to share it with somebody else. From this passage, that seems to be the way the Philippian early believers responded. They, they, they don't have to be encouraged to share it. They can't keep it quiet. Like some of those people Jesus heals and he tells them, you know, just go offer to the priest, but don't tell anybody. And they, they, they can't, can't keep this good news in. Verse 6, and I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Christ Jesus. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Paul starts writing and he just overflows. I, I love you and I pray that your love will be expanded. Where does this prayer life for Paul come from? Verse 8, he said, God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. The ancient Greeks thought about our bodies and corresponding spiritual uh, realities a little bit differently than we do. And, and there's a word that's used here. It's translated in the New Living as um, tender compassion of Jesus Christ. The King James translation, he calls bowels of mercy. And that's really a, 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 a literal translation that's very picturesque of the Greek view of anatomy. Your gut, where your liver and stomach and intestines, in their worldview, was the basis 
for compassion. And some have conjectured, we don't really know, that maybe that comes from the fact that a mother who's comforting their child out of compassion brings them into their lap. And, and so you're, 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 this, this is that area of comfort. Paul says the tender compassion of Jesus, this gut-level love, this gut, gut compassion, just keeps motivating him to pray for them. To, whenever he thinks of them, he's thanking God for them, and he's calling out their best. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 10 verse 1 says, He called his twelve disciples to him. He gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. He's sending them out to bring this kingdom of God transformation into the world of broken people. Those who have evil spirits, those who are diseased, who are worn down by sickness, he's driving them out. He's sending them out, the twelve. If you go over to Luke chapter 10, uh, Luke chapter 9 I think is the parallel to this where he's sending the twelve out. Luke chapter 10, you turn the page and there's this sudden... There were 72 others, never named, not the 12, 72 others that he also sent out. And when he sends them out, the first directive he gives is pray that the Lord of harvest will, Ekbala, will cast out more harvesters into God's harvest field. Jesus is casting out. He's sending out the 12 in chapter 10. But notice what precedes it in chapter 9. Jesus, we'll read verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. It's that same gut compassion word. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out, to to drive out this ekbalo, to, to send out, to commission workers into his harvest field. So his sending in chapter 10 is connected to his compassion 
that directs them to begin to pray for more workers, he's sending out workers. Jesus is modeling a discipline of prayer for harvest. In our efforts to hear from God through prayer walking at Mitchell Nielsen and here in the neighborhood, in our efforts to connect with Julie and folks who've been incarcerated recently, our desire is to hear from God. Lord, where do you want us to be going out on harvest? Who, when you see them, Jesus, break our heart for those things that break your heart. Give us that inner gut level reaction that they're harassed and, and they're helpless and, and they're like a flock of sheep that have just scattered because their shepherd is missing. One of the things that over the last 12 years that I've worked with Final Command, as we've looked at the fruitfulness of some of the African churches that we partner with, and compare it to our relative stagnation in the U.S. These are broad, sweeping generalizations. We've been pleasantly shocked and surprised. But the one thing that uniformly is different there than here is prayer. Prayer, especially for the harvest. Prayer that God will send out workers into his harvest field. They pray it in the morning. They pray it at noontime. They pray it before they go to bed. They pray it throughout the day. Lord, raise up harvesters. Lord, send out more harvesters. Lord, our world needs people on mission with Jesus. And so in the training things that we've done here in the U.S., we keep calling U.S. people to pray. And to be perfectly honest, it, it hasn't shown a lot of fruitfulness. Not my desire to be critical or negative. From this passage, it feels like to me it, it's a more fundamental issue. We lack compassion. There are lots of ways that we protect ourselves from being compassionate. 
I, I don't know the technical terms. I didn't do the research this last week or review some of the research, but there, there have been studies done, numerous studies, validated, checked, that one of the ways we protect ourselves is we just learn not to see people. There, there are whole studies that have been done that the people who are the, the, the lowest level of servants are almost never seen by people who are on a culturally higher level. When at a restaurant do you see the busboys? When they drop a tray and it crashes to the floor. Otherwise, they're like pieces of equipment that are in the background and we don't even know they're there. Uh, There's several years difference between Greg and myself, but we share one common, that I'm aware of, one common professor who taught both of us, and his name is John Mark Hicks. Now, John Mark's not much older than I am, a year, year and a half, something like that, but he's way ahead of me. Always has been academically, and he graduated from college at something like 18. I was just getting started. We shared one year, but John Mark was aware of these types of studies and began to introduce this reality to some of his students at Lipscomb several years ago, and he was so pleased that some of his students started learning the names of the janitors on the Lipscomb campus. Started learning the names of the people who bust the dishes in the cafeteria area. And, and what the students began to find out is most of them were Hispanic or Latino. And some of them started signing up to take Spanish classes so they could speak to them in their heart language. The people who otherwise they were ignoring and overlooking, now they've started to see and began to address the fact that they couldn't even have a normal conversation with them in the language that they would use in their homes of origin. If you're not praying that God will send out workers into the harvest field, then I urge you today, my one point, I really only have one today, is please begin to pray that God will fill you with the compassion of Jesus for lost people. Jesus, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Discipline is something that we know that's built over a long period of time with successive efforts that reinforce and and establish a, a regularity that we cannot feel okay about losing. Forty plus years ago, I graduated from Bible college 
and started preaching full-time for a church over on the other side of Bedford County, close to Deborah's hometown of Petersburg. That's how we met, is through ministry. Another story, I won't go there. Many of you have heard it multiple times, so you already know it. Uh, when I graduated, I thought I knew enough to light the world on fire. Oh, to be so foolish again. Uh, David said something about, you know, how's John feel about preaching again? I preached last Sunday in Tallahassee for the church where Brian and Rachel worship and work. And uh, this Sunday, and I looked at Deborah last Sunday morning and said, I really don't enjoy this preaching gig as much as I used to. She said, well, you are sort of out of practice. And I said, you're right. I've always enjoyed teaching more than preaching. And I'm not sure I fully buy into the difference between those two, but I, I, I know somewhere in there intuitively there's a difference and there are expectations placed on this that don't happen in a 9 o'clock Sunday school class or a, you know when we were having Wednesday night class, some of those things. And... I think the revival spirit of the 18-1900s shaped U.S. expectations on preaching in ways that I'm not sure is totally biblical. But that's neither here nor there. You, you really don't care about any of that. But you've brought out of some of that culture of churches and expectations some sense of if I don't do something or say something in a particular way today, you're going to go away and say, John really shouldn't do this much anymore because he's, he's not very good at this preaching thing. You know, sign him up for teaching. He, he's okay with that. We're still not too sure because he's only got one subject matter that he ever talks about anymore, and that's... Lost people. When's it going to care about us, saved people? And that's a whole other discussion. I really believe the best thing for saved people to be on fire for Jesus and really sense that their lives are having an impact is to begin to have the compassion of Jesus for lost people. Our lives have to matter, have to count for something if we come away with a sense of value. And, and we can busy ourselves with all kinds of things to try to matter. But ultimately, with following Jesus... Lost people have to matter. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men.
That, that was his invitation to the four fishermen that he called that eventually became a part of this group of 12. He, he used what they knew best, what they'd spent their whole lives on, how their family supported themselves as a, a mental picture that going with Jesus is going to help us start paying some attention to other people out there who need to be caught for God. Who need to be brought into God's boat, as it were. Jesus makes some remarkable statements in this passage. He says, The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Back, I don't know, five, six years ago, maybe a little bit longer, I lose track of time. Never have been really good at keeping up with it in some ways. Deborah will confirm that if you doubt it. Um, I was working with David Hunziker. He's the preacher at the West Campus of North Boulevard. Wonderful guy, Harding grad. At that point, David and his wife were thinking they were going to go to Huntsville and plant a boulevard church in Huntsville. And so, to spend time with him, we drove down together and talked on the way there about his plans and explored ways that Uh, disciple-making movements, multiplication kinds of outlooks might be implemented there, what what it might look like. And I shared with David some of the principles that I've trained around the globe in in lots of different places, and it's never as romantic and never as beautiful as it appeared from my pictures or my posts. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, Other than one training, which we actually did under a thatched roof, most of them were in buildings sort of like this or hotel conference rooms. You've been in one? You've been in all of them. They, they really don't, they're, they're not that much different. Southern Thailand was different. It really was under a thatched roof hut out in the middle of a field. David would listen attentively. He, he would discuss and ask questions He didn't push back much. You know, our culture has become much more homogenous in some ways, but we still have some basic, you know, he's an old white-haired guy. You don't argue with him right off the bat. Unless you think he's hell-bound and you got to save his soul from the torment that's coming. Uh, David didn't push back much. It was only, I don't know, about a year later, David shared with me, he said, you remember when we were driving and you were working around the wheel, praying fast, serve with purpose, find persons of peace, start discovery groups, embracing multiplication. And when you got to embracing multiplication, you talked about the fact that we need a lot more disciple makers in Murfreesboro. And to be honest with you now, this is a year later, he's reflecting and coming clean with me. He said, 
I thought, we don't really need more disciple makers. We got lots of churches in Murfreesboro. They're on every corner. But I know now I was wrong then. I said, how'd you come to that realization? He said, I started hanging out with lost people. David started his fishing practice, that's what he called it, over at Patterson Park, shooting basketball hoops on some of his off time. Young, athletic kid. I've not seen him on a basketball court, but I imagine he's pretty good. But he was playing pickup games, and he met this young Asian guy, and they started conversing, practicing some of what I was training him in, uh, just raising spiritual questions. And the, the young guy was responsive. He'd grown up, all of his generations, 13 generations back that they could trace, had been Buddhist. But he kept asking questions that Buddhism didn't answer. And they didn't even want him asking the questions. And so when David asked him some questions that were connected to some of his own questions, he responded favorably. And so David said, would you be interested in getting together with me and reading some of what the Bible says about these things? And he said, yes, I, I absolutely would. David was shocked. He'd never had anybody respond so quickly and positively. And so he said, when would be a good time for you? And this is when he was really shocked. The guy said, 6.15 next Monday morning. The guy was 19 years old. He said, there is no 19-year-old that's going to be up by 6.15, let alone meeting me for a voluntary Bible study. David got there at 6.10. The kid had been there since 5.55 waiting on him. He went over a series of studies from the Gospels from knowing almost nothing about the God taught of the Bible to someone who very quickly, he, he began to speak of God as the one above all. Hadn't, these were Old Testament studies early on from Genesis moved on into Luke especially later. He didn't know about Jesus yet, but in this early stage, he's referencing the, the one above all because he's the creator. He, he's made everything, and he believed it. Okay, th this is one guy that he meets at Patterson. The other two were a couple of brothers who recently had graduated from Riverdale High School. They were football players. They lived their whole life right here in Murfreesboro. And David started telling some of the stories out of the gospel that Jesus would tell with these guys. And they loved it. And they were willing to study. And they brought their, their girlfriends and some of their other family members. And so there's this big group of 19, 20, 21-year-olds who are getting together week by week to explore what the Bible says. And after one of the stories that Jesus told, they were, they were in Luke at this point, um, their response surprised him. And after the group was over, David had a private conversation with one of the brothers, and he said, out of the guys that you were on the football team with at Riverdale, about 75 of them, how many do you think 
we're familiar with that Bible story. Maybe 10 or 15 of them was his estimate. David said, that's when the light bulb went on for me. See, because we've grown up in church, many of us, not, not everybody here, but it looks like most everybody here, we assume all the people out there have had a similar upbringing. Even if they haven't been to church in years, we assume as kids they probably sat through a lot of Sunday school classes and they've heard a lot of these stories. These things are familiar to them. David said, my experiences from Patterson have convicted me that they're not familiar. As Greg takes us through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings and some subs next week, looking forward to that, interested in who they're going to be, uh, a part of what he's trying to get us to do is to help people who've never read it before to not get lost in the weeds as we're reading it. To not bring a lot of our other baggage, and we have to be careful sometimes we're the worst ones, churched up people. That's my loving phrase for us. We like to get lost in the weeds and we lose the storyline. And with Mark, that, that's a tragedy because he's moving pretty quickly. He uses the word immediately over and over and over again. Um, one of the things that I've looked at with some of my training and travels is the differences between the four Gospels and which group of people I might recommend a particular of the four to rather than one of the other ones. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the one that I recommend to mothers who care about their junior high age sons who are ADHD, and all they care about are superhero comic books. Don't start with Matthew. Matthew goes too far back. You see, in a superhero comic book, you don't start with the origin story. You start with the action. Mark's gospel jumps right in pretty quickly. Jesus is a full-grown man launching his ministry. You don't get those early stories like you do in Matthew and Luke. And we're in chapter 3 and we've already got the Jewish leaders plotting to kill him. That's the sense of immediacy. These things are happening and they're happening very quickly. In, in the Holy Spirit's infinite wisdom, I believe He's given us this diversity because the story of Jesus needs to be heard by everybody. The calm, methodical, bit by bit, piece by piece. Maybe Matthew is good for them. The folks who feel like the outcast always on the edges, who've always been ignored, Luke's gospel has a lot of stories there. John's gospel is for those analytical deep thinkers who assume if they can outline it, it's not significant enough 
for them. Asian people, often John's gospel is the one that really captures their imagination. Not always, but often. One young guy, a really bright guy from Asia, was in, a, in an organization with groups of people that worked in Bible translation. And a lot of the Bible translation groups used the Jesus story video as, as an early presentation of the gospel. It's been translated into thousands of languages, literally. And they show it in a lot of places. And it's had a lot of a f- impact in Africa in some other areas, but really in Asia, it's had minimal impact. And there were some folks who were wrestling with why, and he said, this young guy said, you use the wrong gospel. What do you mean the wrong gospel? He said, well, it's based largely on Luke's telling of the gospel story. John's gospel story would get the Asian audience more charged. Haven't tested that, but it's an interesting idea. I've gone so far down this rabbit hole, I'm going to have trouble backing my way out. But while I'm there, I want to share an insight with you for you to pray with me over. And if it's, if it's a waste of time and I'm just lost, then pray for me, my salvation, my, my restoration, my calling back. Out of all these years, of all this reading of the Gospels, and I've focused more on the Gospels. Not, not that I read the whole Bible through every year just for my feeding my own soul. I've done it for 40 years now. If you're not doing something like that, I highly recommend it. it it'll take you 15 to 20 minutes a day. It really isn't that big of a deal. The hard thing is doing it, especially when you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy early on. Uh, The one-year Bible is a good option because you get an Old Testament section, a New Testament section, one of the Psalms, and a few verses from Proverbs every day. And so if your Old Testament reading is really slow, you you can just work through it and get to the Gospel section, and it'll it'll move much quicker. It'll be easier for you. The problem isn't the Word, it's you. Uh, Let's just acknowledge that. Uh, Like our brother was saying, Brian, you know, if we're going to be virtuous, we're going to have to be honest, transparent. Lord, this is slow for me. Stick with it. In my reading from Luke recently, one of many times, uh, and I've preached from this passage a lot, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, There's an interesting dynamic in that story that I've puzzled over. Uh, Many commentators, biblical scholars, believe Jesus is telling one story. He just puts it in three different contexts to make sure his audience doesn't miss the point. You know, there's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, and there's the lost son. Well, in the first two, the shepherd goes looking for the sheep. The woman cleans out the whole house looking for the lost coin. And the father sits 
on his front porch waiting to see the lost son come back. That always puzzled me. I've had all kinds of mental explanations for it. None of them really were very good. Still not to me today in, in my personal, honest, transparent statement. But you know, there was a son that the father went looking for. Wasn't the younger son. It was the older son. The one who wouldn't come into the party. Maybe I've misread that part of the story. Maybe it isn't about the son who wanted his father dead. It's that older brother who gutted it out and resented his father because he didn't really know him very well. Maybe not. I just want to leave that one with you, ponder it. Maybe like a rock in your shoe, you just got to stop and get it out. If, if it's that way, then do. If, if, if God brings some enlightenment to you on this, share with me in your prayer time. Remember his words to the older brother? Your brother was lost and now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. We have to celebrate. Everything that I have is yours. Philippians 1. Matthew 9, there's this gut-level compassion that shapes prayers. For more workers. David Hunziker said, I now believe we need at least a thousand disciple-makers in Murfreesboro right now. Because there's so many people out there like the folks that I met at Patterson Park who know little to nothing about Jesus from the Bible. What's your assessment? What does your prayer life say your assessment of the need is? Are you praying that the God of harvest will send out workers into his fields? Do we even believe that there's a plentiful harvest available? Or has cynicism sort of overwhelmed us into believing nobody out there really cares? Jesus modeled faithfulness. That passage from Hebrews that I read in our greeting. In, in our prayers, in, in our 
communion, we're, we're looking to Jesus. Jesus, what would you have us to do? How, how would you have us build a discipline of praying that at least occasionally includes a request for more kingdom workers? Jesus, if we have no compassion for lost people, please fire our hearts there. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we'll be done. Father, we give you glory. Lord, we pray. for our neighborhood. We pray for our community. We lift up to you, Mitchell Nielsen, primary and elementary school. We thank you, Lord, for the relationship you've given us with Dr. Shields, the principal. We, we lift up to you, her staff and faculty. Father, we pray for their efforts to be salt and light to the children of this neighborhood. Lord, we pray for the children who live in these weekly rent motels around us. We pray for their families. We ask you, Father, to provide good places of employment, safe homes and neighborhoods, stability and regularity that's so often needed if children are going to truly learn. Lord, we pray for systemic changes. We ask that your kingdom will come, that your will will be done here in Murfreesboro even as it is in heaven. And Lord, we confess that some of what we see around us, especially as it relates to the working poor, is such a tragedy. But Father, we confess that it overwhelms us. Protect our hearts from being calloused. Put a pain deep within our gut, a pain of compassion. For the lost and lonely, the fringe, the people that we've been ignoring. And Father, I pray that even today as we go out and maybe we eat at a restaurant, we'll see people we've never seen before. Jesus, we want your heart to beat in our heart. We pray that what breaks your heart will break ours. Give us bowels of tender mercy. Use us for helping others to see Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.